Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. One of the most famous barriers in history was the Berlin Wall which divided Western Germany, the democratic portion, from Eastern Germany, the communist portion. And in 1989, uh, that wall came crashing down due to the efforts of protesters and hammers and cranes. And the fall of the Berlin Wall signaled the end of the Iron Curtain over Eastern Europe. And that act changed the world forever. I remember when it first occurred, I read about it in Time Magazine and was fascinated by it. My great-grandfather at the time, who was 96, was openly weeping, and he purchased, uh, through some magazine, a chunk of the Berlin Wall, at least what he thought was a chunk of the Berlin Wall. (laughs) But that barrier came crashing down. And in Isaiah 64, we hear a very earnest prayer from this most prolific of Old Testament prophets. And he is praying, he is beseeching, he is pounding on the door of paradise that another barrier would be broken. Isaiah 64 comes at the tail end of Isaiah's magnum opus. And he is using this last gasp or this last stroke of the pen to beseech heaven for a miracle for an investment, for involvement. And I want to speak about the three parts of this particular text from Isaiah. There are three parts. The first is a request, a request for God to break through a barrier. The second section is the original reason for the barrier's construction. And the third section has to do with yet another request from Isaiah to break down a barrier though this time with a different tone. But in verses 1 through part of verse 5, we see Isaiah asking, pleading for the breaking of a barrier, and it's summarized very neatly in verse 1. I'd like you to follow along with me if you would. In verse 1, Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I want to let that image linger for a little while. You know, Isaiah is here pleading for something bold, obvious, and even violent. To rend something means to rip it in half, to tear it. And he is asking God to tear apart the sky, to break creation in half so that he himself could descend. And that imagery reminds us of ancient cosmology In the ancient world, many people, in fact, most people believed that the world was flat and that that flat world was covered over by a dome, a dome that had the sky writ upon it. And so the sky, either the clouds or behind them, the stars, was the highest thing that anybody could see. Now, Israelite theology is loftier than pagan theology or cosmology because 
pagan cosmology tended to believe that the gods were contained within the dome, that the gods had their own individual fiefdoms underneath the dome of heaven. Uh, but in Israelite theology, they believed that Yahweh, that the one true God, was superior to and beyond and transcendent. And so he had a realm and a reign over that of the heavens. And Isaiah is saying, you who are higher than the seas, you who are higher than the mountains, you then are, who are higher than the sky, we need you, the highest of heights, to come down here. Now, just for clarification, Israelites were not literalists regarding the actual location of God himself, as if he were an old man wearing Birkenstocks, skipping on clouds, you know, above the sky. No, in fact, Israelite theology was unique in the ancient world because of its belief in omnipresence. They believed that God was everywhere. That's why David can write in the Psalms, if I climb up to the heights, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the realm of death, you're there too. So it wasn't like God was positioned in God's own godness above the heavens. He's being poetic here to say that you who are beyond us, we need you to stop being merely beyond. We need you to be here, not just here, but evidently here. We want you to do something dramatic and universal universally seen. We want you to demo the ceiling of creation and become obvious and public. Now, why is Isaiah so insistent? Because his problems are obvious and quite public. He is living in a very deep and dark cultural swamp that is rife with social injustice, a cold war between Israel in the north, Judah in the south, unjust rulers, perverted clergy, and his deduction is God is not active enough because if God, the source of all goodness, light, and love, were active enough, we wouldn't be having these current crises. And so he is railing against subtlety. He is saying to the Lord, we don't want a parable. We don't want a prophet. We want you. We want you to tear apart creation and come down. Now, why is Isaiah pleading for this? Because these sorts of things have happened in Israel's past. Isaiah knows that God can do these sorts of things. That is to visit his people in obvious ways. He is pleading, do what you used to do. That's why he says in verse three in our passage, you came down. He's chronicling God's history. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. He's recalling Sinai when God visited his people and gave them the law. He's recalling, of course, the Red Sea when the waters were parted. He remembers the manna from heaven. He remembers the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And he is saying to the Lord, in the midst of his own personal and social crises, we need you as much now as they needed you then. So please act and please act now. So Isaiah begs for obviousness, for involvement, for intervention, for substantiation, even for incarnation. Show us some evidence that you actually care and that isn't some ancient yearning by backwards, backwater people. It's the same thing that we feel. I was speaking to Cora, my eldest daughter, the other day. 
who was talking about theology and the coronavirus because she has friends who are suffering from the virus right now. And she says, here's what I don't understand. If God is all powerful and God is all good and he could stop the coronavirus, why doesn't he choose to stop the coronavirus? Simple question, right? And yet incredibly deep and profound. I have felt that way. And I'm sure you have felt that way about a variety of things. If you, the source of all goodness, light, and love, really love me, why did you let that happen when I was 12? Why, when I prayed for this healing of this particular person, who was a wonderful person, did you choose not to heal them, but let them die in misery? Why is it that we have a plague that's killing people that we love? Why is it that the divorce occurred when I, I worked so hard to make sure it didn't? What gives? Is there light and love in heaven or enough light and love for somebody like me to take notice of me? Well, that's what Isaiah is feeling. And that is the place from which he's praying and pleading, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And then he gets even deeper. In verses five through seven, he starts to elucidate the reason for this evident distance between God and people, at least the distance created by this moment of Israelites of the Israelites' history. This is verse 7, a nice summary statement. You have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. You've hidden your face from us. Now, the face of God is an Old Testament expression referring to God's evident kindness his benevolence. Uh, whenever life is going well for you, you're seeing the face of God, so to speak. And that's why at the blessing of uh, God's people in Israelite services, they would pronounce the Aaronic blessing, which you'll hear today. And some of you know it, the Lord bless you and keep you. And it concludes with the Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you his peace. But now in Isaiah's day, God has obscured his face, hidden his face. And Isaiah gives us the reason that God has done this because of iniquity. In other words, for sin the rebellion against the design of creation. Sin is a Berlin Wall of our rejection. It is a Berlin Wall that we create, that we built brick by brick and yard by yard. It is a wall that uh, says to God and all of the designs of God implicit in ourselves and in the world, we reject you. And... As mysterious as it sounds, God honors that rejection, honors it by turning his face away. And what's fascinating and harrowing about Isaiah's diagnosis of his culture is the degree of iniquity's permeation. He says in this passage that even our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, not our sins or our outright defiance of God, but our righteousness is as a filthy garment. By the way, that's a deliberate mistranslation. Sometimes when translators are uncomfortable with the original Hebrew, what it says, for example, like Red Sea in the Old Testament is always Sea of Reeds, but for whatever reason, the King James translated it Red Sea, so everybody else follows suit. Similarly, this text does not mean filthy garments. 
uh, to be very clear with you, and I'm not being offensive, I'm just reading the Hebrew, it means menstrual garments. So you on the best day when you're most like France, St. Francis of Assisi, where you're talking to birds for some strange reason, and you're being extra nice to your children, and your spouse was irritable toward you, but you still made them coffee anyway, uh, when you did your Christmas shopping early, when you sent Christmas cards to your annoying relatives um, who won't send you any gifts or cards in response, um, whenever you did everything right, what Isaiah is saying is still the best that we have to offer is polluted with all varying degrees of self-interest and self-obsession and self-involvement. And so even the best that we have to offer is not acceptable to heaven. And that's very insulting to people that uh, believe that the locus of salvation is within the self. But thank God we have a heavenly father who does not believe that the locus of salvation is within ourselves, but within him and is given as a gift. So, we have created a Berlin Wall of sin and fatuous righteous acts uh, that have caused God's face to turn away. It's interesting, I was speaking to a man a few days ago who was very actively cheating on his wife with two other women. And he was at one point uh, a very kind of active uh, Christian that has waned uh, in subsequent years. But he said, Ethan, you know, I don't even know what I believe anymore. I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And he didn't seem to see the corollary between blatantly acting against the design of God and of all creation and defying his vows flagrantly with one's perception of heaven. But I would argue that they are in fact connected, unsurprisingly. And when we willfully act against that which is best for us and best for the world, the design of God that is implicit in the created order, it is no surprise that our eyes become glaucomad and we can no longer see as we ought to see. And so... We have this Berlin Wall. It's interesting in Romans 1, Paul's definition of God's wrath. God's wrath is not him sending the dragon smog to burn down our villages or to rain down fire from heaven. Instead, God's wrath in Romans 1, repeated thrice, is God gave them up. God gave them up to what they wanted. God simply let them have their sin. Or to quote one theological wag, the punishment for sin is sin. When God permits us to do what we want and glean the results. And so in verse 1 through 5, Isaiah pleads for heaven's intervention. And verses 5 through 7, he describes why the distance exists. And now in verse 8, Isaiah asks yet again for an intervention. But this time his tone is demonstrably different. He's softer, subtler, and more tender. This is verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. At first, Isaiah appeals to God's power. Now, Isaiah appeals to God's tenderness. He's essentially saying, don't do the demo thing. Don't demolish the sky. Instead, just come down the stairs. Be like our parent. Uh, be like an exquisite artisan. Uh, and so he likens God here to father and potter. 
Uh, it's interesting uh, he uses father imagery because the Old Testament rarely uses father imagery to describe God. It's, a, it's the principal title that Jesus employed, but that was unique in the ministry of Jesus. But what Isaiah is saying here is act parentally towards us. Act like you raised us from our birth. Act like you provide for our daily needs. Treat us with strength and tenderness. And then he says, be a potter for us. What does a potter do? A potter digs up ugly clay from the ground and then fashions it into something useful as well as beautiful. A potter is the job of a caring, careful, subtle artisan. And Isaiah is pleading for that. Be tender with us. Be cautious with us. Why is he changing his tune? Well, anybody who thinks about God's justice for more than about three minutes starts to change their tune because they then begin to understand that if God is wholly just, wholly righteous, and enacts that justice and righteousness upon us whose best works are like filthy rags, then we're all, we're all in a great deal of trouble. And so we need God not to be just with us or severe with us, but we need God to be parental and tender and not to remember our iniquity forever, to develop a special kind of amnesia where our felonies are concerned. And so Isaiah pleads for an intervention, but that intervention is now laced with tenderness. Tenderness. And that is how our section of scripture concludes. Now, what about us? Well, this is Advent, and Advent means appearing or arrival. And we who wait for Jesus' second appearing can join with Isaiah and his urgent petition. I think Advent gives us several permissions, but here are two as obligatory words. One is the permission to ache. Permission to ache. You know, unspoken prayers can often eat us away from the inside. And what Isaiah does by battering heaven with his demands is giving us permission he gives us permission. So did the Psalms, by the way. Uh, some theologian or biblical scholar at one point said that the Psalms are basically divided into three categories. They're glad, they're sad, or they're mad. Many of them are mad. And they rage out, if you will. Not only publicly, but canonically. This is written in sacred scripture. These are readings after which we say the word of the Lord. Right? I mean, they're really ticked off and they're raging in heaven and they're saying, you're not fair and I don't like my life and I don't like my life because of you. And I wish that things had gone better for me, but they're not going better for me. But what happens in the Psalms, at least most of the mad Psalms, is after they're done writing out all their rage, they begin to praise at the end because they've, they, what they've done is they've integrated themselves, right? They have given voice to their pain. And when you give voice to your agony before the throne of God, that pain becomes less and less of a master to you. It stops reigning and ruling over your life. When you bring out your agony and your ache and your plea, when you articulate it and you don't, don't let it be some subconscious mumble in your soul, but when you bring it out, it tends to get healed in the revelation of heaven. And Isaiah gives us permission, as does the rest of the scripture, to do that sort of thing. Sometimes I think we're more spiritual than God or more spiritual than the Bible or we think we ought to be. We're not, but we think we ought to be. But scripture gives us that kind of permission to 
ache to heaven and to ache publicly. In other words, scripture, I hate to say, I just have to, I hate to say this. Scripture was not written by British people. Um, Even as an Anglican, it's so painful to say that. Um, What I mean by that is this stiff upper lip stoicism with which we often live does not derive from Holy Scripture at all. So it gives us permission to ache, but also permission to hope. Permission to hope in the paternal care of God. And Advent is all about divine paternity. It's about a father who gives a son. It's about a father who gives a son who reflects his face to us so that that face of God will never again be obscured by the Berlin Wall of our sins. This is a son who not only shared our pain and our weakness, he shared our alienation. He knew what it was like to be cut off from his source. And that's why on the cross, he could claim that he was a forsaken one, just like the rest of us. Just like you, battering heaven for an answer, pleading for something better. And as we know, three days later, he got what he asked for. And so shall you. So in Advent, we celebrate a heavenly act of subtlety, that is, the birth of a baby. But it's a heavenly act of subtlety with universal implications, and that's how the kingdom of God works. It always breaks through the heavens in subtle ways, like a snowflake that descends, or the tiniest seed scattered in a field. I'm reminded of a story regarding the Berlin Wall that makes the point. Uh, Many of us, of course, remember the fall of the wall, but most of us will not remember one critical element in the fall of that wall. So in Leipzig, there was a rector of a Lutheran church named Christian Fuhrer. What a great name. Uh, The rector of St. Nicholas Church in 1982 decided it would be a good idea to gather a small group of people from local Catholic and Pentecostal and Lutheran churches to pray for the peaceful reunification of Germany. Well, they met, they made invitations for others to come and meet and pray, and very few did. About 10 of them, 8 to 10, gathered for five years. But then, at about 1987, that movement started to grow, and they got a dozen people, and then 20 people, and then 100 people, and then 1,000 people. That, and the church was fairly small, so they had to plan several prayer meetings on several days of the week. Then eventually 1,000 people, then 10,000 people, then 70,000 people in Leipzig, and then in 1989, the day before the wall came a-crashing down, 300,000 people prayed at the wall. All peaceful demonstrators with their candles and their prayers. And there was a communist East German soldier who was tasked to guard the wall who commented, we soldiers were prepared for everything except for candles and prayers. Sometimes avalanches occur because of a single snowball. And sometimes the world is changed in the birth of a single Mediterranean peasant baby. A baby who will grow up to rend asunder temple curtains and demolish the Berlin Wall of sin and death. And with him, all things are now possible. Amen.